All right, I'm going to read uh, Philippians 1, and our text this morning begins at verse 12, and I'm going to read through verse 18. This is the Apostle Paul, and he writes to the church at Philippi. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. But the former proclaim Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Just to give you a little bit of context again, Paul is writing these words from Roman imprisonment. He's in a rent house, but he's shackled to a Roman guard. You can sort of catch up on the history lesson from last week's message, how he got there. But he's under 24-hour surveillance chained wrist to wrist to part of the imperial guard, these 9,000 elite soldiers that were on six-hour shift duty to make sure that Paul didn't escape or run. He was going to meet with the top man in the world, Caesar, at that time and give a defense for himself, but most of all for the gospel. So it's a very serious moment, but He is not discouraged in this sobriety, this serious moment, because he knows that the gospel is advancing through this unique way and design that the Lord has set it up to advance. Literally, him communicating to guards, communicating to synagogue leaders that are coming by, communicating to visitors, to um, different churchmen and churchwomen that would come by and talk to him, that were free to visit him, even though he's shackled up. Hey, let me tell you about Christ, and let me tell you, guard, about Christ. And what was happening is the gospel was going viral all around Rome, which was the center of the Roman Empire. Very strategic for him to get there. I'm sure he didn't want to go there by way of trials and persecution. And literally, you know, under uh, a guard watch, but the Lord designed it that way. Paul was very humbly receptive to the Lord's evangelistic strategy to reach the imperial guard, to reach Caesar's palace, as the guards would have communicated all around Caesar's household, and then also as the rest of the people around Rome were hearing about this wild man who was on fire for Christ, who was shipwrecked on the way to Rome, who'd been under um, trials at Caesarea, who was part of this Christian movement, this new sect that was growing by leaps and bounds, upsetting the world for Christ. Who is this guy? Well, everybody was giving him sort of center stage, um, listening to what he was communicating as the word of God was spreading all around You know, the gospel goes out, no matter how we set it up to go out, the Lord is building his church. He's building it through churches, and he's building it through faithful Christians who are willing to say something for Christ. And guess what? His heart was on fire, where he was saying, I'm rejoicing through this situation and circumstance. And my heart for you and for me as I read this paragraph is to be influenced by Paul's 
witness, by his leadership, by the idea that the gospel going out is the most important thing in life. We want to give God glory and want to give God glory through his mission work going out through what we say and how we live our lives and who watches us and how people are influenced. Last week I talked about politics some in the political arena and how our hearts sort of lift and fall sometimes with circumstances and politicians and agendas and things that we love and things that we don't like so much. And it's important for us to be involved as American citizens, but there's something that's higher that's more sure and that is uh, victory is sure in, and that is gospel ministry and mission. And we have to sort of soar above the circumstances in our hearts as we're gospel citizens. We're bowing down to the King of Kings and Lord of Lords who has everything under control. You know, our hearts undulate or go up and down with a lot of things, don't they? Do you ever get affected by sports? You know, I do. I, you know, if you know the score between the, the Redskins and the Giants, you're not allowed to tell me because I don't watch the game till about 8.30 at night. So just keep that to yourselves. But, you know, it's been, it's been a hard 15 years for me as a Washington Redskins fan. But, you know, that can be, that can be straight-up idolatry, can't it? Where you just, your heart literally gets gripped by something, inspired by something in this world and then you get let down, and that can be distracting. Well, if you want consistent, steady, strong, gospel-centered, um, world-influencing joy, you've got to make the gospel the first thing in life. I mean, that is, that is my goal as a preacher, is to get you to love the gospel, not only the Holy Spirit can do that in your heart, but i got to set the conditions for you to fall in love with the gospel every single week. Look at verse 12. Paul said, I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. Remember, Paul was beat up. He was, he was incarcerated. He was surrounded by a Jewish mob because they said he was trying to mess up the synagogue and threaten it by bringing Gentiles through it. And then he went to trial in Caesarea for two years. And then he went by boat to Rome because he appealed to Caesar. I mean, he said, look, I just want you to know that all of these wild and crazy circumstances that have brought me to Rome, it really is doing something for the kingdom. That's his point. He's going to prove it out. And I just want to pick up on this word again, advancing the gospel. That original Greek word is talking about a forward cut. It's the idea of an army cutting brush down and taking ground, advancing. It's like a pioneer pioneering new land. The gospel was on the move. And he wants to prove this out. And he gives two ways that this is proved out. We went over the first way last week. And it is that people were listening to Paul's gospel message. It's important, listen, for you to know that your life is not being wasted, right? I mean, it's important for us as human beings to know that God is using us in this life. Is that not important to you? I mean, we want to, at the end of the day, achieve some things, but ultimately, we want to be satisfied as Christians and joy-filled to know that we're making a difference for his kingdom. And there's two ways that Paul evaluated the idea 
that the gospel was advancing. And the first way he evaluated that, which is the same way that you and I should evaluate our lives, is he said that people were listening to his gospel message. Is anybody listening to what you're saying or how you're living? Well, Paul said they were to him, verse 13. He says, so that it has become known, this is the gospel, the advance of the gospel has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. Saying, look, I'm, I'm in this imprisonment, I'm, I'm under lock and key, but the guards know it's for Christ as they rotate through. And all the other people around Rome, they're getting the real sense, whether they believe it or not, that it's for Christ. That's how we want people to look at our lives. We want people to know that ultimately what makes us tick, what flips our switch, is that we love Jesus and we're living for him. Your kids know one way or the other. They know the truth about you. Your intimate friends know one way or the other what makes you tick, what you're living for. Your coworkers probably have a sense of that as well. It doesn't take much to tip the scales one way or the other, but if you love Christ and your heart is for him, then people are going to get a sense of that about you as they are around you. You're either a good witness or kind of a bad witness, but we're all witnesses. And Paul is saying they were looking at his life, both the government officials and also Roman citizens, and they were listening. Now, point two, how Paul evaluated that the gospel was advancing is that people are preaching the gospel message that he was living. Are people preaching your gospel message? You say, wow, what, now what are we talking about? You know, you might say, I'm not a preacher. I, I'm not going to make preachers. I'm not like a walking seminary or Bible college. What are we talking about here? Well, it's as simple as this. People are repeating the same gospel that you're living to other people. That's how the gospel goes around the world. You say, well, today we've got you know, an incredible opportunity with multimedia, with the World Wide Web, that the gospel can go out in innumerable ways and make an impact around the world. That's true, and we praise the Lord for that. But let me just tell you this. There's nothing like an authentic life that's spirit-led where that influence pours out on other people and they, they catch on and they go, wow, you know, that, that life was transformed and my life is transformed and now I'm going to share that with other people. That's how the gospel spreads authentically and powerfully. You know, a lot of people will evaluate the blessing of God based on the crowd, you know, the, the masses. If you can get thousands of people under one rooftop, then that's God's blessing for sure. I mean, how can you argue with that? Maybe. It, it can be. If you look at the book of Acts, you have thousands of people saved and amassed at one point. But on the other hand, you had Jesus who drew the masses, right? He would draw big crowds. He would heal people. He'd raise the dead. He would say provocative things, and people would engage him, and they would draw close to him. But then he would confront people about their sins, and the crowds would disperse. And so crowds can be very fickle. He turned around to his disciples in John 6 and said, do you also want to go? They said, where else have we to go when you alone have the words of eternal life? They got it. And that's authentic gospel advancement. When people get it, 
Do you see? You see the difference? It's very important to understand that the gospel advancement happens through authentic living and communicating that is then communicated that is then communicated and that's how the gospel spreads and goes around the world and that's how this movement is not spurious or fickle or on the edge the gospel will work and is working and we are living proof in Anchorage Alaska that 2,000 years later the mission that was set in motion in Acts 1-8 is still happening today or part of that advancement. So let's look at the text here. How was it being spoken? Verses 14 through 18 give three different words and how the word of God was going out. Verse 14, he said that brothers were bold to speak. You see that word speak at the end of verse 14? To speak the word without fear. That literally means to just say the word, to, to speak the gospel in conversation. Paul was not just a preacher. He wasn't just a guy like John the Baptist. Paul was a person who would go into a synagogue and sit down with people as a former Jewish rabbi and just dialogue, just get into conversations with people about Jesus. He did that with Lydia, the Philippian jailer, and other people. Jesus did it all the time as he was walking around. People would come up to him. He'd go to them. Evangelism isn't just standing on a street corner, you know, sort of John the Baptist-like. It's conversations its relationships, and Paul would hear about these conversations, and he would participate in conversations, and people were listening and saying it. All right, secondly, another word that we find is verse 15, preach. That is the word kerux. To be a preacher is to be a messenger. Anytime that you have the word kerux, the idea is an ambassador is going in 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 the name of the king and communicating a message. That's pulpit ministry, preaching the word of God. It's delivering the goods. You're not making something up. You're hearing the word of God and you're communicating it out. And some of you will have teaching posts and preaching posts and the ability to communicate on a wide level. That's what he's talking about here. And then the last word in verses 17 and 18 is the word proclaim. It comes from the word angelos, where we hear that word angel in that word. It's the idea of an announcement. It's a declaration. There are times in your life where you will be called upon to announce the good news. It might not be a warm dialogue environment. It just might be, hey, I got to take a stand for Christ and say something. You ever sense that you're supposed to say something and you kind of back away and go, I'm afraid, I'm not going to do that, but I should announce the good news? Well, Paul is commending this kind of announcement. And he's saying that people were talking about the gospel, people were preaching the gospel, and people were announcing or proclaiming the gospel because Paul was in jail. So he knew it was advancing. He knew it was working because the same gospel that he was preaching and dialoguing about and teaching was being replicated. That same action was happening outside of the walls of his rent house turned cell. Okay? So that's what proved it for him. I, I don't know that we could be more thrilled and more joy-filled and more excited than any other knowledge other than to know that, hey, we're living the gospel and we're preaching it, and we're saying it to people, and other people are saying it to other people. That's the sweet spot in the Christian life. That's when you can say, man, I'm rejoicing no matter what. I'm pumped. I'm, I'm satisfied with my life because I'm on the mission, and people are getting it. That's what you want. You want your kids to be gospel communicators. You want your grandkids 
to be gospel communicators because they heard something or saw something in your life. Maybe you got to make something right with your kids or make something right with your grandkids or, or, or take a step spiritually to see that influence and effect, but it's worth it. It's worth it because we want the word to go out. It's Paul's heart. So there's a couple categories of people that were communicating the gospel here, and I'm going to sort of break it down in this way. There were brothers, people that were friends with Paul that were communicating the gospel, reaching a million people in Rome. And then there were mean brothers who were preaching the gospel. So you have brothers and you have mean brothers. You ever know a mean brother? You don't have to respond. Okay, verse 15, look at this. It says, some, we'll get back to 14, but some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. That's a mean brother. Then you have brothers. But others from good will. So you have brothers and you have mean brothers. Let's look at the brothers here. Verse 14, skip back. It says, and most of the brothers have become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment are much more bold to speak the word without fear. All right, he's talking about brothers. He's talking about Christians around Rome, who he knows about, who used to probably be afraid, but their fear was replaced with confidence. So confidence and boldness replaced fear. That's what he's talking about in verse 14. Why don't we evangelize? Why is it scary for us to evangelize? Is it for lack of knowledge? Do we not know enough about the gospel to actually say something to someone? That could be the case, but that's probably not what shuts our mouths. Is it based on, you know, fearing people? Or is it based on a lack of training? What is it? What stifles our ability to say something? To look people in the eye and speak truth? What is it that holds us back? A lot of times it's just a lack of confidence, a lack of boldness that we need as Christians. We need to overcome fear, not gain more con content. Now, I think it's important to be studied on the gospel and, and to be knowledgeable, but there's a lot of knowledgeable people that will not say, I love Jesus and I want to tell you about him. I mean, it really isn't a technique as much as just being confident in the Lord. Look at the text again. They weren't confident in Paul. It says, having become confident, what? In the Lord. These were people that they were impacted by Paul's sacrifice, impacted by Paul being in jail, and suddenly their eyes weren't fixed on Paul as a hero, but they were fixed on Jesus, and they were saying, I love Jesus, and so I'm going to go for it. There was a, a confidence breakthrough where they began to speak boldly without fear. That's where you want to be. It's where you're afraid to sort of say something to someone, maybe even your kids or your spouse or, or your neighbor or people around. But what breaks through is your relationship with Christ is more important to you than what people think about you. That makes sense? You're just, you're just immersed in Christ to a level where then you'll go, okay, I will say something. Well, you see more of this down in verse 16. Verse 16, love and loyalty replaced doubts. It says the latter do it out of love, 
knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. Now, at this point, they actually were um, not just thinking about the Lord, but they're actually thinking about Paul at this point. Uh, if you look at the text, it says that they had love. Who, well, who was the love for? The love is actually directed toward Paul at this point. And so, literally, these people's hearts were melted for their mentor to a point where they were willing to say something, to be fellow defenders of the gospel. Again, Paul was in prison. They could have been ashamed of that. They could have said, oh, I don't want to be associated with that convict guy. You know, what's he doing? Obviously, something went wrong. But no, instead, they loved Paul. They realized that he had self-sacrificially suffered and was suffering. And so they jumped. And they were willing, out of loyal love, to preach the gospel. There's a lot of motivations that people give for preaching the gospel. You ever hear... Speakers say, you know, if you don't preach the gospel to people, the blood is on your hands. You know, you ever hear that? There's some sense, you know, there's some biblical backing to that kind of thing, but not in the sense of being led by guilt or legalism or the idea that, you know, if you don't say something, who's el who else is going to say something to people and they're going to go to hell if you don't say something? Well, hell is real, hell is hot, hell is eternal. Hell is awful. It's all sobering. I understand that. But God is sovereign. And what I'm seeing in the text is that the number one motivation for evangelism is love. Is love. Paul said as much in verse 7. He said, It's right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart. Do you see the love relationship in that? He had affection, verse 8. I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ. Look at verse 9. And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more. How did Paul get the Philippians to evangelize? How did he get people in Rome, Christian brothers, to evangelize? He just melted their hearts with love. He prayed that they would love Christ it's the same motivation for being pure and blameless. Verse 10, how do you get someone to be holy? Well, you don't bind them with a bunch of legalistic laws. You say, look, God is holy, and let's be in awe of his holiness, but fall in love with him at the same time. Let your love burst for God. And if you love God, then holiness will follow. If you love God's word, if you love Jesus Christ, if you love God's servants like Paul, then your heart is going to melt with love and you're going to join the mission is what Paul was saying. Let your heart break. You know, when you're in love with Christ and you're focused on him, do you notice how the fear and inhibitions melt away when you're talking to other people about Jesus? If you're, if you're kind of thinking, oh, I hope they don't hate me or disassociate with me. If your eyes are focused in that direction, then yeah, things aren't going to go well and you'll probably shrink back from your mission. If you go, you know what? I love Jesus. I'm going to pray about it. I'm going to swallow hard and I'm going to go into a conversation and I'm going to think about Christ and how much I love him and love his mission. Then I'm going to speak. And then the gospel and your love for Christ comes out naturally. And that is what Paul was promoting. Again, he was in jail. His ministry was so authentic because nobody could argue with whether or not he believed what he meant. Nobody could question his 
motivations. And I think these people became more bold and more loyal because they said, if Paul can do it, then guess what? I can too. If he can go to jail for the gospel and that's what it looks like, then I can kind of go there too. It happened in the 50s. You remember the Aka Five, the Jim Elliott and Nate Saint and those, you know, bush pilots that went into Ecuador and dropped food down to a cannibalistic people that ultimately killed them. Well, they were Wheaton College graduates, and as the story goes, Wheaton was turned upside down because these fellows, students and graduates, had been martyred. And so there's been missionaries that have poured out of Wheaton under the training there for the last five decades. I was in a sort of a movie clip showing with some college students um, a few years ago. And my father-in-law was there, and we were sort of, he was visiting us, and he came to this, um, this movie showing, you ever heard of the movie, End of the Spear? And it was, you know, sort of celebrating the Aka Five that had died, and Elizabeth Elliot that went back with those women and wives and evangelized the tribe, even the, the very people that killed her husband, and um, sort of a great movie. But as it was being shown, I looked over, and my father-in-law was breaking up in tears, and the reason was because he was there in the 50s being called to the mission field, being called to the pastorate. And part of what compelled him to give the gospel and to give his life to pastoral ministry was these martyrs. That's the effect that was going on here. Paul went into the battle zone and was sacrificing for the sake of the gospel, defending the gospel. And these brothers were with him in their hearts, and so they got bold. Well, not only do you have love and loyalty that's replacing doubts in brothers, but then you have another kind of person who is giving the gospel, and these are the mean brothers. Now, I say they're brothers because I think Paul sort of kept them in that category. Look at verse 14. He's saying, you know, and most of the brothers... And then verse 15, he says, some indeed preach. I don't think he's changing his uh, title here. He's saying some brothers indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. And then others, other brothers, do it out of goodwill. So you have mean brothers that are preachers, that are communicating, that Paul ultimately is saying, I rejoice in the fact that the gospel is going out, even though people are being mean towards me in jail while they're doing it. We need to meditate on this idea, right? Because there's a lot of people in your lifetime that will be mean to you. Undeservedly so, right? People who actually are jealous of our good fortune or God's blessing on our lives and need to sort of step on that to prop themselves up. That's what they were doing here. These people were looking at Paul's mission and they were saying, okay, Paul is the one who has the audience with the imperial household. Philippians 4, verse 22 says, Caesar's household greets you. So there were people in higher up echelons of government that were getting saved through Paul's mission post, which was in prison. He was influencing the synagogue leaders. He was influencing other people who were conversing like a YouTube viral effect all around Rome. And these preachers... We're looking at that and they're going, man, we need to like tear that down a little bit to prop our ministry up. <gasps> Could you imagine somebody doing that today here in the evangelical church community? 
heaven forbid. Well, people do that all the time. People, people want to promote and prop up their ministries at the expense of others, and it's just the pride of the human heart, and it's sad. But it's important to fight those kinds of ideas and rivalries in the way Paul did. He simply said, man, praise the Lord, the gospel is going out. That's what he said. If the gospel is going out, then there's no problem. And he didn't even care in the way that it was going out, even in pretense or in truth. Even if they're pretenders or sincere, he doesn't care as long as the gospel is going out. Again, look at verse 15. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry. Now, is Paul saying that, you know, even if there are false teachers out there, he doesn't care? No. Paul always went, the gloves are off, when he talked about false teachers. Always. He's always really hard on people who mess up the message. Always. If you flip one page over, Philippians 3, verse 2, he calls people who add to the gospel dogs. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Now, to call someone a dog is pretty strong language, isn't it? That's a far cry from, hey, this is a brother. I mean, he's calling these people here dogs. Why? He says, look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. He's saying, look, there are certain people who are saying the gospel is Jesus plus doing something else for you to get in the, get in the kingdom. Anytime you have a Jesus plus gospel, it's no gospel at all. Do you hear me? That's very important to understand. The Bible is replete with that message. Anytime you add grace plus works, you've got no gospel. Grace plus works means that it's not real grace we're promoting. If it's adding to what Jesus did on the cross as the sufficient, perfect atonement for our sins, if you add a work to that, you've undone the gospel message. And Paul is saying, look, that is, that is wrong. He, he and and later on in the chapter, in verse 18, he calls those people enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, verse 19. Their God is their belly and their glory is their shame with, my, with minds set on earthly things. He goes after those people. In 2 Corinthians 11, he says that people who were accusing Paul of not being a real apostle, they are, you know, enemies of his. They're, they're coming as sort of like Satan disguised as an angel of light, saying they're deceptive, they're destructive, destroying the message. Now look, no church is going to be perfect. No church is going to be perfect. Our church is not perfect, and I don't expect it to be. We're not going to have the perfect methods. We're not going to have the perfect way or mean. I don't mean to communicate anything like that, but I want to get the gospel right. I kind of said that coming in three years ago. I, there's not a whole lot that I'll fight about or kick up controversy over, except one thing, the gospel. The gospel, that's it. That's the only thing worth fighting for. Preferences, you know, whatever, who cares. The gospel, that's what we want to defend. That's what we want to promote. Why? Because if the gospel is clear, people will be saved. If the gospel is muddied or corrupted or, or soft-pedaled or changed in any way, form, or fashion, it hurts people. It confuses people. It causes people to stumble. So 
There's not much else worth fighting for except the purity of the gospel. We're going to have a perfect church, but we need to have a pure gospel. And therein lies joy because you're fighting for something that God blesses. Well, these people were tearing Paul up and they were, they were doing it out of envy. They were sinfully, you know, envious of Paul and, and sort of stepping on his ministry. And then in verse 17, it actually gets worse. It says, the former, this is the mean brothers, the former proclaimed Christ out of rivalry, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. They literally wanted to hurt Paul purposefully in jail. They were that mad at him. I think some, sometimes they were actually put on trial themselves as preachers, as communicators. They were saying something that was a very unpopular message in Rome. You have Caesar who is walking around like a god, and then you have Christians who say, hey, Jesus is God. He's the only God. And so people go, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. If Caesar is this deity walking around, then who are you talking about this Jesus guy that's, that's higher than Caesar? You should get in trouble for that. And they would go, whoa, wait a minute, wait a minute. Yeah, we believe that, but it's all Paul's fault. It was that guy over there. He's in jail for it. We're not in jail. He's in prison for it. And so go pick on him. So they would even steer the attention away from themselves and endanger Paul in prison with their bad motivations. How do we respond to this? I mean, who is beating you up verbally, you know? It's one thing to be attacked in terms of your personal character, but it's another thing for people to muddy the message. And I think it's important for us to fight for the right stuff. Don't fight for your own personal ego or reputation, but fight for the gospel. Fight for the truth. What better way to smile back at people who are hurting you than to say, look, as long as the gospel's going out, I mean, however you say that, you know, however it comes out, the smile behind that statement is really what impacts people. Because really, it's all about people hearing the way to Jesus Christ. And, and having sort of a cherished heart for that deflects all kinds of hurt and angst. Now, I think Paul was weeping in jail. I think he was sad by people who were coming after him. He had tears in prison, as we read about in Philippians 3. But there was something that overrode his sadness, and that is the joy of Jesus and the gospel. Do you want that joy? I want you to have it. The reason I went into this book of the Bible is for the theme of joy. I want us as a church to be captivated by joy and for Paul's testimony of joy to rub off. And meditating on his mindset is so helpful for me. There are so many ways to get down. But there's one way to always sort of pop back up, and that is the joy of the gospel. And the joy that we know that we're winning because God is winning. And God uses us in a variety of ways. We're all called, Philippians 3 says, we're all called to be lights in the world. Look at verse 12. Um, you know, we're to work out our salvation in fear and trembling. Verse 14, we're not to grumble Grumbling is, is, is where you're just down and you're mounting words up in negativity. But we're called instead, verse 15, to be blameless and innocent children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation among whom you shine as lights in the world. We're called to be shining lights. And the only way we can shine is if we have a gospel 
testimony that's filled with joy. And the only way to have that joy consistently is to have this kind of mindset where you say, everything's about the gospel advancement, the glory of God, knowing Jesus Christ and wanting other people to know him too. If that's your superseding, overarching mindset, I promise you there's joy there. I promise you. And you see this, you know, verse 18. Both versions were sharing Christ. Mean brothers and brother brothers were sharing Christ. They were, and so he was rejoicing. He says, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense, that means to pretend, or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. Yes, I will rejoice. Do you hear Paul at the end of that sentence? He's, he's talking to himself. Remember we talked about this a couple weeks ago when I introduced the book. There was a preacher named D. Martin Lloyd-Jones that I've read, you know, some of his book on spiritual depression. It's a great book, and he's a great preacher um, of the 20th century in London. And he was also a medical doctor, and he said that the key to fighting depression is to talk to yourself, not listen to yourself. You sort of wake up with a subtext that tells you negative things. I don't know if you've ever experienced that, but, you know, when you're getting ready, off to work, and your mind starts to race and spin towards the agendas of the day, there can be a a crowd of negativity and a subtext of thoughts that will flood into your mind that will tell you things that are against Christ or against the gospel and will undermine your joy. Have you ever had the joy sucked out of you before you could even have breakfast? Well, the way to combat that is to, instead of listening to yourself, you take hold of yourself with the gospel. I mean, one of the, and I'll just promote this, one of the books that we're promoting, the, the book we're promoting this month is The Discipline of Grace. This book is uh, written by Jerry Bridges, and it was founded on a preacher's statement that said, you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. Don't listen to the world. Listen to the gospel. Listen to Paul and his heart for mission. And that will transform your mindset and give you joy. Jerry Bridges, he said, you know, your days are never so good that you are beyond the need of God's grace. And your days are never so bad that you are beyond the reach of God's grace. So whether you have a good day or bad day, we need to introduce our hearts every day with grace. And realize what we're put on this earth to be all a part of. He says, what then? It's almost like a compartmentalizing statement in verse 18. It's like, okay, bad brothers, people who are mean are coming after me, but so what? That's what he does. you got to have a so what in your heart if you're going to be happy. So what? They're after me. But the gospel's going out. It's okay, only that in every way, whatever method, whatever motive, whether in pretending as a preacher or being authentic in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, I rejoice. He says again, yes, I will rejoice. Both compelled joy. Both kinds of brothers compelled joy. You know, in Oxford in the 1700s, there were a couple of real stalwart preachers that came 
um, out of that education, and they got saved, and they came here to America and preached the gospel in pioneering ways. You had Charles and John Wesley, and then you had George Whitfield. These were premier pioneering preachers. It reminds me a little bit about you know, people coming to Alaska, sort of coming to a new area where you're pioneering in the land. And so I've sort of thought about them coming to the lower 48 as I've come here, just in the sense that the gospel is advancing where you go. And they went at all kinds of risk, you know, with Native Americans there and, and people that could have killed them. And, and they were colonizing, you know, the land during that time. And Whitfield was preaching a gospel that was more reformed. Uh, more, he, he articulated truth very similarly to how I try to articulate truth. That was his theology. And John Wesley... And they all came from the same school in Oxford, and they were all part of the Holy Club. But John Wesley, who, who was the father of Methodism and the Methodist denomination, preached a more Arminian gospel and, and emphasized uh, the free will of man more. Well, ultimately, John Wesley and George Whitfield had kind of a relationship where they fell out from each other. And it, it was purported that John Wesley actually, you know, went after George Whitfield and his open-air preaching. And George had amassed a, a church in the colonies that John influenced to sort of leave George Whitfield and disband from him. So it was some Christian persecution that was going on from a brother. And someone wanted to sort of capitalize upon this and exploit, you know, the emotion of the moment and sort of gossip and lure George Whitfield into being negative on John, and he said, a guy asked Whitfield this question, do you expect to see John Wesley in heaven? Do you think you're going to see him there? And George Whitfield, knowing what the motivation was behind the question, quickly replied, no, I don't plan to see him there. It's like, <gasps> but then he responded and said, John Wesley will be so close to the throne of glory and I will be so far away that I dare say I'll barely able to um, see him in the glory as he's closer to Christ than I'll ever be. That was his mindset. That's a gospel mindset. We don't need to denigrate other churches. We need to prop them up as long as they're preaching the truth. As long as they're preaching the gospel, we want to buoy that up. And we also want to promote people who are struggling to preach the gospel and help them. We want to promote gospel influence because that is the irreducible minimum for why we are here, for the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that we can be influenced by Paul, by his leadership. Lord, more importantly, by your lordship in our lives. God, I pray that we would be gospel citizens and that we would herald and uphold your glory. I pray, God, for those who are struggling with depression, with guilt, with fear, with anxieties, Lord, that you would quell those with a gospel mindset. Lord, we pray that we could put off fleshly thinking and negative thinking and put on Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh, but always and ever be communicating the gospel with joy. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.